please turn to the 26th chapter of Jeremiah. 26th chapter of Jeremiah. If you're new here, I see some new faces. We're in Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, of course, is not in chronological order, so you're going to see something that took place in the earlier ministries of Jeremiah. If you want to see another view, you could say maybe first person instead of third person, you can look at Jeremiah 7. But last week, first part of chapter 26, Jeremiah is preaching the truth. God has given him a message that if you don't repent, the Babylonian army is going to come and destroy your city. People didn't like hearing that. So if you read verse 8 and verse 9, you'll see that the priest and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, you shall die. How dare you say these words? They're wanting to kill him. Jeremiah speaks up for himself, and that's where we ended. Now we get to part 2. So you're going to hear the part 2 of this little trial that Jeremiah is going through for preaching the truth. And the people and the crowds and the priests want him dead. This is what the prophets get. So let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of the scripture and bless the preaching of his word. Father, we come before you and we're thankful for this book of Jeremiah. Father, it's been convicting, it's been challenging. We see that there are people who are in covenant with you living lives contrary to the truth. There are people, Father, sacrificing children to Molech. There are covenantal people going home from temple and worshiping false gods just in case they are right. We know the whole land is full of idols. And the Babylonian army is about to destroy the very temple set up by King Solomon. And Father, you raised up Jeremiah to preach against that wicked and evil people. There are many who repented of their sins. There are many that are still trusting in you that will be taken to Babylon that love you and know you. And yet the whole land is being purged because of his sin. So Father, we pray that we would learn from Jeremiah 26. May we see your providential hand in all that's taken place. And may we see your son Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah 26, verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the officials and all the people said to the priest and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah, a Moresheth, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them. But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. When the king Jehoiakim, with all his warriors, 
and all his officials heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahakam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. And thus sends the reading of the very words of God. 1599, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, was performed in front of an audience for the first time. As the plays became more popular, about 1623, Shakespeare started writing them and it was mass-produced for people to have. You've seen the play and you know us about Julius Caesar and, and Brutus and the, and the Ides of March and Julius Caesar being stabbed in the back, all those great mysterious things that took place. And really what Shakespeare's bringing out is the, the Battle of Pharaoh where Pompey the Great was fighting against Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was clearly outnumbered, but because of his special type of warfare, he won the war. And you see that the whole Roman Empire became the great empire that it was because of that great battle in defeating Pompey. In the opening lines of the opening act of Julius Caesar, Morellus is having a conversation with Flavius, and Julius Caesar's coming back from his victory. And everybody's cheering, Oh, great Caesar! You're amazing! In the opening act, Morellus and Flavius are laughing and criticizing the people. Said it was just recently that you were cheering for Pompey. How great you are, Pompey! Now that you're defeated, how great you are, Caesar! You know, crowds are pretty fickle, aren't they? One moment they love you, the next moment they hate you. We're going to see that in chapter 26. A very fickle crowd. Not very decisive in what they want to do. Of course, a theme that you see throughout Scripture. And you know that. It's a theme you see throughout your own life as you watch politics and celebrities and everything else. And if you're taking notes, you're going to see five things. The first thing we want to see here is the fickleness of crowds. The second thing we're going to see is the reliability of Scriptures. Third thing we'll see is the application of prophecy. Fourth thing we'll see is the providence of God. And the fifth thing we'll see is Esther of Jeremiah. The fickleness of crowds, reliability of scriptures, application of prophecy, providence of God, and the Esther of Jeremiah. And as we talk about the fickleness of crowds, you can think of celebrities who at one time were loved by the masses and then they were hated. You can think of public figures who were hated by the masses and now they're loved, right? It doesn't take much to get canceled sometimes, whether... You're a product, whether you're a celebrity, no matter what it is. Because the crowds are fickle. Calvin, in his commentary on Jeremiah, says that yes, the crowds are like the sea. It's itself calm and tranquil, but as soon as the wind arises, there's a great commotion and waves dash against each other. So it is with the people, who often are excitable and, and sometimes they're quiet and peaceable, but, but sometimes problems come and it stirs them up who retain the same simile, we would say, are fluid like water. 
the ebbs and the toes of the, of the tide. And the, this is what people are like. We clearly see in verse 8, chapter 26, you shall die. They want to kill them. They're angry. They're mad. And then all of a sudden in verse 16, this is what they say. Then the officials and all the people said to the priest and the prophets, this man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord. Fickle crowds. Now this worked out. This was, this was a good fickle, you could say. I'm glad they changed their mind. It's kind of different, right? So sometimes we want to make Jeremiah the type, but here's the anti-type of Christ. Remember, originally Christ came through and they were praising him. Hosanna, Hosanna. Praise the Lord. They're throwing palm branches down. Glory to God in the highest. And, and, and then they're screaming, give us Barabbas, crucify him. Can't trust crowds. You never be able to trust crowds. Luke 20 is very interesting. They come to Jesus and they say, what authority do you have to preach the messages you preach? And Jesus says, was my baptism from John or from heaven? Oh, well, clearly says, the Pharisees and the scribes say, well, if we say it's from heaven, we're, we're going to make him to be God, and we can't do that. If we say it's from man, people love John the Baptist, and they're going to kill us. So they say nothing. Not the first time the crowd is involved in the death of Jesus Christ as he's coming to pay for our sins on Calvary. The crowds play a major role throughout the Gospels, and they play a major role throughout the Old Testament. And the reality is this. You'll never please the crowd. Ever. Ever. In a million years. And that's the problem sometimes with politicians, is it not? We've got to please the masses. We've got to please our constituents. We, at the end of the day, is there someone you're trying to please other than God? On social media. At work. In your neighborhood. The persona that you're trying to pursue. I mean, you're not going to please the crowd. It doesn't work. We see here, even in Jeremiah, they're going to be fickle. Sometimes they'll be right, sometimes they'll be wrong. But you can't please the crowd. Which brings us to the second point of our sermon is the reliability of Scripture. How do we know that this book that we read, my brother's old Bible, I've got it here. How do we know that this Bible that we read is reliable? I am preaching an English text of something that was written around 600, 605 B.C. As a matter of fact, you go to Egypt, you'll see the text is almost the same, but it's different. You go to the 1940s, the 1956 Qumran Cage, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you're going to see another book of Jeremiah that's a little bit different. How do we know that what I'm preaching is accurate what are you doing here if it's not? I can just tell you, just believe me and trust me. I don't think that's the way to go. I want you to understand, one of the ways you can believe in the reliability of Scripture, one, we, we know the Holy Spirit has inspired it, but we know that the people who were there at the time it was written believed it was Scripture. You remember that odd verse in 2 Peter 3.16 where Peter goes, I don't understand everything that Paul writes. Sometimes it's difficult to read. I want to say, yeah, Peter, that's, we, you're the same way. But anyway, he said, Paul's difficult to read and understand. But we know, as in all of his letters, he's writing Scripture. Peter believed what Paul was writing was Scripture. 
And one of the things we see in this text is they knew what Scripture was. They knew that Micah of Moresheth, the, the book of Micah that you're reading, that was written 100 years previous to this book, was actually Scripture. And you'll see these come out in Scripture. They know what the canon is. You don't need a church to tell you what the canon is. It wasn't a 4th century church in Rome, not saying their name, that declared what Scripture is and what Scripture isn't. As a matter of fact, the moment the Apostle John died, the last book was written. No other books. The Apostles died. There was no more Apostles to write. It's done. And everyone in the early church knew which books were Scripture and which wasn't. The same way they knew it in the Old Testament. Even before Revelation had finished, they knew it was Scripture and they knew it wasn't. You want to know why you have 66 books? Not only because of the providence of God, is because people know. Those are just dumb country people. Listen, they spoke many languages. They knew. Look how reliable the Scripture was to them. Verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priest and the prophets, This man does not deserve to die to be sentenced to death. For he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord. Verse 17, And certain elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Remember Micah? Micah Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain on the house of a wooded height. Of course, Micah was almost living at the same time of Jeremiah. hundred years previously, you think the Babylonian army was horrific? Read about the Assyrian army. Read how wicked and terrible they were. See, they were coming to destroy Jerusalem just like Babylon was. They wanted to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and God has always raised up prophets to preach to the people. And Micah was preaching judgment on, on Gath and other cities. And he goes down to Jerusalem and he preaches judgment upon Jerusalem also. If you don't repent, then God is going to come and destroy your city. Same Micah that talked about O Bethlehem of Judah and the Prince of Peace. Hezekiah is in the same situation as Jehoiakim. Micah was in the same situation as Jeremiah. He's saying that Zion will be plowed as a field. They are looking to Scripture, and they're saying, do you remember what Scripture says? And you know what's interesting? Who are the heroes that brought this up? To all the priests who are saying, peace, 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 God's not going to destroy you. All the false prophets, peace, 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 God's not going to destroy you. Who is it the people in verse 17? It's the elders of the land that are fighting against the professional theologians. Now, if that's not a word to the PCA, I don't know what is. Bereans and elders, you better know your word. You better not let someone in this pulpit preaching false doctrine. That's on you too. You remove them. Throw a hissy fit. You become a covenanter. You go to John Knox, read what he would have done. No, don't do that. But anyway, it was the elders who stood up. 
And that's important to understand. Going against the professional theologians of the day. I'm sure that was a brave task for them. We've seen the fickleness of crowds. We've seen the reliability of Scripture. Now we're going to see the application of this prophecy. Do you know what they didn't do here, which is fascinating? They didn't say Micah was written 100 years ago. It doesn't apply to us. How many times have you heard that? You're sharing the Scripture with someone. Well, that's old and antiquated. That was like 100 years ago. I mean, we're living a new time here. They believed the book of Micah, though it applied and there was an application to people who were fighting the nation of Assyria, King Hezekiah was there. Though they have a new king and there's a new army, they believe that scripture related to them. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that all scriptures is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, and instruction of in righteousness. For you, you are the people of God. It applies to you. Look at verse 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put, this is Micah, to death for preaching the same message Jeremiah is preaching? That if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring disaster upon ourselves. See, as the Assyrian army was surrounding Jerusalem, Hezekiah did what Jehoiakim did not. And that was humble himself before the Lord. He listened to Isaiah the prophet and Micah the prophet and he fell on his face and repented of his sin and did what a leader is supposed to do. He says, we are guilty of sin. Oh God, oh Yahweh, help us. You are the king and you are our God. He repents. And you know what God does to people who repent? He takes them back. And you know what he did? He destroyed the Assyrian army without a sword being picked up by the Israelites. What Hezekiah didn't do is put Micah to death. And these elders are saying, well, wait a minute now. Before we go killing Jeremiah, we do have idols everywhere. <laughs> we are in a pretty bad spot. We are sinning. Jeremiah is not lying. He's basically preaching the same message of Micah. If we fear the Lord, God's not going to let us be destroyed. See, they feared the Lord a little more than they feared the crowds. See, because when you fear the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. And when you fear the Lord, you don't have to fear anybody else. That's the reason we're to fear the Lord, because he's on our side. And if we fear him, we don't have to fear anyone else. God rescued Hezekiah. That's what, that's what he does to people. When you're in your sin and you repent, he takes you back. The blood of Jesus proves that. He punished his son, so we don't have to punish you. We have a very kind and compassionate God who, who takes his people back. We've seen the fickleness of crowds, the reliability of the scripture, the application of prophecy, and now we're going to see the providence of God. Sometimes the providence of God isn't sweet. Like the seas of Narnia, right? As you go far as you can before you get to Aslan's country. 
Sometimes it's bitter. Harry Reader, 76 years old, woke up Thursday morning. I don't, I don't think he thought this may be my last day on earth, but it was. There was a bitter providence that took place in our denomination. This is what he wrote. I went back and listened to his last sermon, and this is what he said. He said, see how many of the reformers wrote a letter that included their future plans. And every time they wrote about their future plans, they always ended their letter with DV, which stands for Deo Valento, in Latin meaning maybe, maybe not, if God wills. See, the reformers understood you can make plans all you want to, but God's bitter providence may come and change your plans. And they always added, I think we're going to do this, Deo Valento. See, there was one prophet who did not get the sweetness, you could say. He, he got the bitter providence. One commentary says there was one prophet who did speak also of the ruin of the city, but not with impunity. In case you think that as long as you're like Jeremiah and you preach the truth and you do everything right and you live your Christian life, then no one's ever going to mess with you. I think Baruch and Jeremiah said, let's tell them about Uriah just in case they think that this is norm. Can't figure out why it's in there. And if you have a reason that you think, please feel free to take me to lunch. I even may buy that lunch because I want to hear, hear your thoughts on it. But look at verse 20. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. That's somewhere probably near Gath. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. He's preaching the same sermon as Jeremiah. Repent or perish. Same message. And when King Jehoiakim, by the way, who was set up by Egypt, he was basically a little Egyptian puppet king, his younger brother came in, and Jehoiahaz, and he died after three months. I think Chronicles calls him Eliakim. But Jehoiakim, who was actually, you could say, the little king, the vassal, the little king of Egypt. Verse 21, all of his warriors and all the officials heard his words. When they heard Uriah preaching the same message to Jeremiah, the king sought to put him to death. And when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. So before we say, there it goes, he fled to Egypt. Well, listen, do you remember Elijah the prophet who was being chased by Jezebel? He fled. God's like, get out of there. They're trying to kill you. There's also another prophet who fled to Egypt named Jesus. Now, of course, that was a part of the same Roman Empire. Remember King David? Saul was trying to kill him. Psalm 34, he escapes to Gath. Not a very good move. Very funny psalm, if you ask me. Very C-minus decision he made. But God took care of him there. So let's just not judge Uriah when people are trying to kill him. He's trying to get out of the situation. God uses means. And oftentimes, they're normal, ordinary means. Uriah was an ordinary means guy. He's like, they're trying to kill me. Maybe I'll leave. Got in a horse and a buggy. Took off. Nothing wrong with that. Verse 22. But Jehoiakim, being a puppet king of Egypt, sent to Egypt certain men 
Elnathan, which you'll see again, the son of Akbor, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his body into the burial place of the common people. Originally, three weeks ago, I was going to title my sermon, The Tale of Two Prophets. Jeremiah turned out pretty good for him. Well, not in the long run, but he survived. Uriah, not so much. Same message, different outcomes. Just because you're living the gospel out, there are no promises in Scripture that you will not face persecution and face death. Stephen died, Peter lived. Paul had his head chopped off probably 68, 67. John, the apostle, lived for a really long time. Jesus had a stepdad that died, but his mom lived. Talked to a war veteran. They asked the same question all the time. Why didn't I not fall? My brothers did. Ask them. Two very influential men, Harry Reader, Tim Keller, in our denomination. One year of their life was probably more influential than all 50 years that the Lord ever lets me live to longer than he wants me to live. But in God's providence, he took them home. Dr. Harry Reader, in one of his, his last sermon, he actually said this, In a real sense, the secret will of God is none of my business. None of my business. We are to be like James and Proverbs, and when we go to plan our life, we need to say, if it's God's will, because we don't know his will. And the reality is, is yes, Jeremiah lived, but he wanted you to know Uriah did it. The point is, are you serving the Lord? Are you trusting in him? Are you believing his goodness? Are you resting in Christ who came and, and died for your sins, who took care of your greatest need? We've seen the fickleness of crowds, the reliability of Scripture, application of prophecy, providence of God, and now we see the Esther of Jeremiah. 1973, Donald Fry graduated from Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, moved to a church in Phoenix, and if you've ever been a Calvinistic Baptist, you know who he is, stayed at his church for 48 years. Something that flows throughout many of his books and many of his sermons is he talks about Esther so much. And he talks about the Esther of God. Oftentimes, Esther is a great illustration for all of us. Sometimes he raises people up and puts them at the place at the right moment. Here we see the Esther of Jeremiah. You remember, Haman wanted to kill the Jews. Esther wins some type of beauty pageant becomes royalty overnight, becomes the queen overnight. And Mordecai, her uncle, says, maybe you won that contest for such a time as this. Maybe just for such a time as this, God allowed you to win that competition. Book of Esther, you won't find the name Yahweh in there. That's the point. If you look hard enough, you'll see the hand of God working, always. And what happens here? is God raises someone up in a high place to take care of Jeremiah. Look at verse 24. But the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to put to death. What's very interesting 
is he was the son of the secretary of Josiah the great king. You can read that in 2 Kings 22. You'll see some other names that are very familiar. It seems that some of the men were loyal to the king and some were loyal to the word that Josiah put forth. This was a man who was loyal to the word of God. He didn't care who the king was because that's what Josiah taught him to be. So yes, not everything stuck with Josiah, but some of those reforms stuck to the point where some may even say he was the son of the high priest. What did he do? He protected Jeremiah. He was in a high enough position to protect Jeremiah. It's very reminiscent of Joseph of Arimathea. Isn't that an interesting story? Jesus Christ dies and Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who sat on the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus, from like John 3. The bravery it took for those men to come before Pilate and say, can we have his body? To put him in a tomb. I don't know if they believed in the resurrection. They believe it now. They were just doing what the law said. They loved their rabbi. They loved Jesus. And God oftentimes raises people up for such a time as this. Whatever job you have now, whatever neighborhood you live in, whatever home you live in, whatever situation you live in, you never know that you may be that Esther position for such a time as this. You may be a Hecom for such a time as this. God has, may have just raised you up for just this time. As we close... I think about Jeremiah chapter 26. And what really hit me is how many antitypes were in here. You may have noticed this, but it seems that Jeremiah is on trial. He opens his mouth and he says, Yes, I said that and I stand by it because God told me that if you don't repent, you're going to perish. The city's going to be destroyed. And if you kill me, my blood is on your hands. I'll be innocent and God will bring vengeance upon you. And they're like, oh. And he gets off scot-free. It seems that Jeremiah was on trial and opened his mouth, defended himself, and it worked. Jesus, on the other hand, was on trial, did not open his mouth, and they put him to death. Let's not think that Jesus could not come up with something winsome to get out of the situation he was in. The reason he did not open his mouth lest he was so wise, they would let him go. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I better not speak up. They'll probably release me because I'm intelligent. And I can run circles around all these men. As David said this morning, my hour's come. And he knew it. My goal and my hope and my prayer was to present to you that not all things work out the way you think it does, but it works out the way God wants it to work out. God took care of Jeremiah. God took care of Uriah. But at the end of the day, Jeremiah ended up dying eventually. I don't know if I'd rather die or be thrown into a cistern. I'm claustrophobic. That'd scare me to death. We'll eventually get to that. But the Lord takes care of us. And he took care of our greatest need in Christ. And I pray that as we feast on him this evening, that we will realize how much he loves us. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word.